Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are present with us and true and real. We pray now that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we consider your word. And we pray that you would move us to be a people who pray. And we pray, Lord, that you would extend out your hands and give to us more. And we pray also that you would help us to not only be hearers of the word, but to do what it says. Come help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, how wonderful was celebrating together 10 years last weekend, right? For all of us who were able to be here, I have to tell you, leading up to the weekend, I was monitoring the weather like I was a meteorologist the whole week, just watching every day, and it said 60% in cloudy and 60% in rain, and every day praying that it'd be sunshine. Have you ever seen bluer skies than what we had last week? In fact, at one point while we were sitting outside, it got so hot that I felt like saying to the Lord, okay, we get it, we get it. How about a cloud or two? Come on already. Okay, here's where we're at. We've celebrated 10 years together, and the question for us, Seven Mile Road Church, is now what? Now what? And that's what we've been thinking as leaders and praying through together is what do we do in this fall having celebrated 10 years together? And, and as we've thought through that, two things from last weekend gave, at least for me, encouragement that we were sort of on the right track as to what God might want us to focus on this fall. One was last Saturday at our banquet as we were finishing up, Christy prayed. And as she prayed, she prayed thanking God for all that he had done for the last 10 years and then beseech the Lord on all our behalf that God would do more, that God would do more in the years to come. And similarly, on Sunday, if you were here when Matt preached, he preached from Psalm 126. And in Psalm 126, the people of God reflect on God's goodness, and they say it, it was like a dream to us, right? And Matt said, do you remember, it's almost like you have to pinch yourself and go, look around, isn't this like a dream to us? But then he reminded us that in the Psalm, the people of God, as they've praised him, then return right back to the work that God has for them. And, and Matt's caution was, while it is right and good to look back and reminisce, you can't get stuck in the good old days. You can't get stuck in the glory days. You can't park in the rear view, but rather you've got to press on knowing that God has more for us. Since Jesus hasn't yet returned, since we're not yet in the new heavens and the new earth, that means there is more for us to do. More of God to have, more of the city to love, there is more. And so this fall, what we're doing is we're beginning a series simply called More. In a sense, we're stretching out our hands to the Lord and we're saying to God together as a church, we're not done, we're not content, we want more. We want to say together that these last 10 years were great, but if God is going to have us around for another decade or till he should return, then we want the next 10 years to be years in which we love God more than we did before, in which we love his word more, in which we love his presence more, in which we love each other more, in which we love the city more, in which we love the nations more. All of that God has for us, we want more of it. And so what we want to do is give ourselves in this season in a unique way to hearing from God through his word, and seeking God together through prayer, asking God for more. So here's the idea. If this was 10 years ago, before we launched services, 
Before there was any public service to put on, there was a foundation of word and prayer preceding that. You called it sort of like pre-launch in church planting. And the pre-launch phase of church planting is just a group of committed people who come together, real simple agenda, and we just beg God and pray for what was ahead, for the fact that we were trying to launch a church. Now we're 10 years in and we can't roll back and go into pre-launch phase again. So here's what we can do. What we can do is devote our Sunday mornings to word and prayer in such a way that this season, that is the fall of 2019, might be a unique way of laying a foundation for the next decade for us. Meaning you might not have been here 10 years ago, but you're here now. And what God might do with us this fall could lay a foundation for the years to come. And so we want to press in together in word and press in together in prayer. And when we say we want to pray together as a church, we sincerely mean we want to pray together as a church. And we want to use our Sunday mornings to pray together. In fact, this is how serious we are. I literally have a stopwatch going, which I never, ever, ever, as you know, have. And so your preachers are committed to preaching shorter sermons. We're going to try and go 25 to 30 minutes at the most so that we can give time in our service for us to pray together, so that we can press in together in a unique season of prayer. We'll try it in different ways in the weeks to come. We'll try it where we just throw it out to the congregation and anyone that wants to pray can pray. We'll try it where we'll huddle together in smaller groups of three and four right in your seats and pray together. We'll try it where someone will come to the front and lead us in a topic of prayer through the night, through the mic. We'll try it in different ways. And I want you to hear this. This will be new for all of us. And none of us are experts in it. And we'll be awkward, I'm sure, as you wait going, somebody please pray. Please, somebody just pray. It'll be clumsy at times, but we'll learn and we'll grow together and we'll seek God to truly be a people of prayer. In fact, it might be encouraging to you to know, if you're not an expert in prayer, you can join the club because no one here is. It might be encouraging, in fact, for you to know that the disciples of Jesus, when they were around him, they watched Jesus do miracles, they watched Jesus preach, they watched Jesus uh, do signs and wonders, and yet the one thing that we have recorded in the scriptures that they say, Jesus, could you teach us, is they, Lord, teach us to pray. That is, that as they were around him and as they watched him preach and minister, the one thing they needed to say was, Lord, you got to teach us how to pray. And so we can be like those disciples and we can ask the Lord as a church family, not even just as individuals, Lord, teach Seven Mile Road how to pray and what it looks like for Seven Mile Road to be a church that prays. I want you to even hear, if you're new to church or new to Christianity or new to this whole Jesus thing, there is no pressure. You are welcome to simply observe as we try our best to treat God like he's real and speak to him. I'd even say you've already taken the first step of coming to church. You are welcome to take a few first steps in prayer with us as well. I, I want to remind us that when Jesus taught about prayer, his opening line was, when you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. Meaning the immediate thing that he taught us, that is our posture in prayer, is we're children, he's a dad. In fact, when Jesus taught on prayer, he said things like, listen, even if you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who pray, those who ask him? And so everything about Jesus' teaching in prayer is, you know how a little kid comes to a dad? That's how we come to God. 
You, you remember when, if you had children, you remember when your children took their first steps, their wobbly, weak, shaky steps? They didn't stand upright and march. They wobbled over and then they fell. And no dad started shouting, going, that's not how you do it, right? You, you did what? You pulled out the video camera, and you cheered, and you said, come on, come on. And you took video of this thing, their first weak, wobbly steps. And that's all we're trying to do as a community. We're trying to take some weak, wobbly steps in prayer to a father who welcomes us as children, knowing that every little step we take, he celebrates with great joy. So we want to be a church that prays. And to help us take some of those first wobbly steps, all I want us to do today is to sort of frame this by saying, here's what it looks like when God's church prays together. That's what I want us to look at in God's word, is give you a picture of what it looks like when the church prays and the amazing things that God does when a people will gather together in corporate prayer. And to do that then, I want to quickly walk you through some of the chapters of the book of Acts. If you remember, Acts is a book that we studied together, and and I'm not wanting to park in any one passage in particular, but rather just walk through a few different passages, and in flying over them, have us see what it looks like when a church prays. In fact, what it looked like when the first church prayed. Okay, that's what we're doing today. When Acts, if you remember, if the book of Acts is Jesus, God in the flesh, had come, had died for his people, had risen again. And Acts 1 begins with Jesus ascending into heaven. And he says that he'll one day return and make everything new. Until that day, he told his disciples, wait, because God will send the Holy Spirit. That is, God the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in the hearts of his people and empower them to become real followers of Jesus Christ. So he left with that promise. And what does the church, the believers do, having received that promise? Here's how Acts begins. Acts 1 verse 14 says this. You can just hear it with me. All these, with one accord, were, watch that, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here's the scene. Jesus has ascended, saying, I will send the Holy Spirit, And the posture of those first believers then is to wait for the promised Holy Spirit in prayer. That as they wait, what they do is they gather together and they pray. And they pray expectant that God will any moment now pour out more on them. That he gave them Jesus and that now he was going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And it's in the context then of a group of believers who are gathered together and devoted to prayer that you get the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what we call Pentecost, and the church is born. Or then, when these early believers need to make a major decision, that's what you see in chapter 1. They're going to need to make a major decision, and what will they do? Look at 1 verse 24. It says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here's the scene. This beginning church plant, this brand new group of believers, needs to make a decision, and the decision is about leadership. 
right? There was an apostle named Judas. He betrayed Jesus and committed suicide. And as a result, there's a gap in their leadership. They need to fill it with someone, and they don't know what to do. So catch this at my road. What does the church do when it doesn't know what to do? They pray. When they don't know what to do, the one thing they know to do is to pray. And they essentially say to Jesus, Jesus, you, Lord, know all the hearts of the people. You have to show us who it is that you want us to fill in this spot. And consider this, Amarod. Jesus had himself handpicked all the apostles. The apostles were not chosen by man. They weren't selected by a committee. Jesus had selected them. And so they pray to Jesus that just like you chose the first 12, you have to choose this replacement. And Jesus acts, that's the name of the book, from heaven through the prayers of his people. It's Jesus still who chose the 12th disciple again. Isn't that something? It wasn't a committee. It wasn't man. They didn't do it. They waited on Jesus to make that 12th selection, and Jesus acted from heaven. And how did he act? In response to the prayers of his people. So what should a church do when they're at a crossroads and don't know what to do? They should gather together, and they should seek God in prayer, and Jesus acts from heaven in response to his people as they pray. If you keep reading in chapter 2, verse 1, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, and we have what's called Pentecost, the birth of the church, and this one spirit-filled man named Peter, one of the early pillars and leaders of the Christian church. He stands up and preaches a sermon. 3,000 people are cut to the heart. They become followers of Jesus. They get baptized. They join the local church. And when they join the church, what does that beginning first church do? Acts 2, verse 42 and following. Here's what it says. Here's the scene of that first church. And they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the picture of the early church, and in fact, every church that has ever existed wants to be like that. Every church aspires in some way to reflect that. A, a people that gather together in the temple and then gather together in smaller settings in homes. A people that come together and eat together and worship together, that share possessions with each other, that if they have need, they give to one another, they study the scripture together, and all of that happening, community and mission, day by day, people are getting saved, and part of the rhythms of what they did is they ate, and they studied scripture, and they shared, and they laughed, and they lived life together, and part of those rhythms is 42. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That is that prayer was a regular rhythm of what it meant for the people of God to be the people of God. That when they came together, it was a regular rhythm for them to be a people that prayed together. Not even just individually that they had their own devotional times. But that when God's people gathered, prayer was a regular rhythm in their gatherings. So people who 
pray expectant on the Lord and receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A people who had a crossroads and don't know what to do, pray and receive direction from Jesus and him acting from heaven through prayer. A people who gather and a regular part of their identity and their rhythms is to be a people who pray. As you keep reading, this loving, praying, sharing community of believers is so attractive that others keep wanting to be a part of them, keep wanting to trust in their Jesus, and Jesus keeps doing great things from heaven. In chapter 3, he heals this man, and as a result, some leaders come and persecute the apostles. They basically tell them, we don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. They imprison them. They threaten them. If you talk about Jesus again, it will not go well for you. What do they do in response? What does a church do that is facing persecution when they're threatened to their very existence? What's their knee-jerk response? 4 verse 23. When these two apostles are released from prison, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends, right, to the church, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. That is, don't talk about Jesus anymore. What's the knee-jerk response of the church when they hear that? 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made earth and heaven and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? And they start quoting the Psalms in their prayer. And then they say in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Hear this. They had been warned to stop telling people about Jesus. They'd come under persecution. The existence of their church was under threat and their immediate response is to gather together and to pray. And what do they pray? They pray essentially for more. They pray for more boldness and more evangelism and more signs and more wonders so that more disciples might be made and the gospel might be reaching more. And what happens when this church prays for more? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did you hear that again? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Don't you hear that and have a longing that whatever that looked like and whatever that meant and whatever that was, we want that too. Don't you sense that and go, we want in our gatherings to encounter the presence of God, that it's unmistakable that he's real and that he's here. Don't you want when we gather together that there be no question in anyone's heart that we met God when we came together today? They, they prayed in such a way that that place shook. God showed up. God was present in their midst. God wasn't a dry doctrine in their heads. God wasn't a belief that they held on to in their heart. God was a person who showed up in the room and everybody in the room sensed he was there. Don't you want that if God gives us 10 more years, that when we gather together, it'd be unmistakable and clear, the living God is here with us 
And when we pray, he's present and he shows up. And what does he do? He fills them with the Holy Spirit. That's something because we just said in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them. In fact, it says Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and preached the sermon. And yet the Spirit that filled them in Acts 2, now in Acts 4, is filling them again. One person said it's almost like because we tend to leak. And so we constantly need the Holy Spirit to fill us. And so here is this people gathered together to pray. And they're praying, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And as they pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, they are filled with greater boldness so that they do more evangelism and more disciples are made. Don't we want that? And so you hear and see this church that prays together. Now here, if you keep going, I I won't for the sake of time keep going through all of them, but what you'll see is the gospel keeps advancing, more disciples are being made, more cities are being transformed. With that, more suffering and more persecution comes. Hear that. A praying, vibrant, growing church endures and faces even more suffering and more opposition and more persecution. And in chapter 12, there's a man named Herod. And Herod, it says, has already killed one of the leaders of the Christian church, a man named James. And now in chapter 12, he has Peter arrested, and his intention is to do to Peter what he already did to James. Hear that. That's not an empty threat because he's already killed James. Everybody in the church knows what he's capable of. And so now he's got Peter in prison, intending to do to Peter what he just did to James. And so Peter's in real danger. And what's the immediate response of the church when they hear that Pillar Peter is in prison? When he's in danger, 12 verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Their knee-jerk immediate response to hearing that Peter was in prison was to gather everyone together to say, we need to pray. And earnest prayer was made for Peter by the church. That's 12.5. Literally the next verse, 12.6. God hears their prayer responds in such a way that he literally orchestrates a prison break. Peter is rescued from the prison. The whole thing feels so surreal that Peter feels like he's dreaming. He's not even sure that this is real. When he comes to his senses and he wakes up and he realizes, I've really been busted out of prison, his immediate response is to go to a house where he knows the believers would have been gathering to pray. Nobody even needs to tell him. He knows they would have all been at that house. They would have been praying for me. So he goes to the prayer meeting house, and here's what happens, 12 verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. You get the scene? The church is having a prayer meeting. And they're praying in earnest. And they're begging God. You can hear the prayers. God, please set Peter free. God, rescue Peter. You you already saw what happened to James. Don't let any harm come to Peter. And all of a sudden, in their prayer meeting, there's a knock at the door. And it's Peter. 
And a girl hears Peter's voice that she's so amazed, she leaves Peter out at the gate, doesn't open the door, to go back and tell the church prayer meeting that their prayers had worked and that God had rescued Peter. And the response of the church is to go, you're nuts. You're crazy. There's no way. In fact, they literally have an easier time believing that it's Peter's angel than that their prayers actually worked. So, church... If you ever doubt whether prayer actually accomplishes anything, it's good to hear you have company. They had prayed in great earnest, and they had no thought that God was actually going to actually do it, to the point that Peter knocked on the door, and they couldn't believe it was him. You ever struggle with wondering if us praying together makes any difference? Ever wonder if us praying together actually does something? And here is this knock on the door. And, and I love this. Peter's waiting outside. You can imagine Peter's thinking, God literally busted me out of prison and I'm going to die in the street because they won't open the door, right? <laughs> Prayer. They prayed to the Lord and a real God heard their real prayers and answered in such a way that this believer who was on the brink of death was rescued and the gospel continued to advance. I'll give you one more. The gospel is going everywhere, continuing to advance everywhere. The church is being planted everywhere. And then it goes to a city named Antioch. And in the city of Antioch, a church is born among not Jews, but Gentiles. This cosmopolitan city in which there were Persians and Indians and everyone from everywhere in Antioch. In fact, it's said in Antioch that the people who belonged to Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. Because till then, you could go, those are the Jews. Those are the Arabians, those are the Persians, those are the Chinese, those are the Indians. But now you had a room where they were all together, and you go, what is that? We don't have a label for them. And so they literally came up with Christians. They're the people of Christ. And so Christians were born in Antioch. And so this church plant gathers, and they've got two leaders among five, Paul and Barnabas. And while this church is in a prayer meeting, 13 verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Hear that. A young baby church plant and the Holy Spirit in the context of a prayer meeting shows them that two of their most prized and significant leaders are to be sent out for mission. You can imagine that's hard for any church to do. Any church to take two of its best and two of its leaders and send them out and trust that God will keep us and we'll survive and they're being called to what God wants them to do. And they do it. And listen to that. As a result of that prayer meeting and as a result of Antioch sending out Paul and Barnabas, literally, Antioch becomes the most fruitful, prolific, church-planting church in the New Testament. In fact, most of you, what you have in your Bible in the New Testament, all those letters come because of the church at Antioch. Meaning, if you have Philippians in your Bible, or Corinthians in your Bible, or Thessalonians in your Bible, or Ephesians in your Bible, it's because Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to plant in Ephesus, and plant in Philippi, and plant in Thessalonica, and plant in Corinth, and planted these churches, all because, in the context of prayer, God had showed this people that they were to sacrificially send out their best for the sake of global mission. The most prolific church-planting church was born out of a church that gathered together to pray. We could keep going, but 
Don't we hear all of that, Sabama Road? Don't you hear all of that, brothers and sisters? And at least it begin to produce in you a curiosity. What might God do in the next 10 years if we gave ourselves to truly being a people of prayer? What things might God want to accomplish among us if we sought him together for more? I want to tell you this weekend itself, this weekend itself, between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, God gave me multiple instances to reinforce in my own heart that prayer actually does something through a living God. Like if I had time, and because of this now I don't, I would tell you of various ways in which this weekend itself, God reminded us that he is real, listens to his people when they pray, and acts in response to their prayer. I can tell you quickly, on Friday, Binu, Sibi, myself, and Dennis were gathered in a room we were meeting. And as we were meeting, we got a frantic text from a friend from out of state about a real threat, and I won't go into the details, to his family. The kind of situation that in a moment's notice could go awful. And we were included on a text with a, a dozen other guys from around the country. So hearing this and sensing the danger, we immediately stopped and begged God in earnest prayer. Like really genuinely, with tears in our eyes, prayed that the Lord would hear us. In fact, I was reminded that we had just finished the book of Esther. When the people of God, the Jews, were under threat and they prayed and fasted for three days and God delivered them. And we asked this Lord to do the same. And a few minutes later, we got a text that this incredible situation completely de-escalated and everyone and everything was fine. If I could tell you the details, you'd hear what a wonder it was. But it's the kind of thing that you either respond and go, what a coincidence, that was meant to happen. Or you go by faith. We have a real God who listens to real prayers and chooses to respond. And we, we trust him for when he does. Or, or I could tell you yesterday... If you were at the BTC Gala, okay, if you were at the Bombay Teen Challenge Gala, they had a gala last night to try and raise funds for human trafficking and fight human trafficking in India. I was in this room huddled with a bunch of people. The, the, the thought of the night was that they were going to try and raise funds and do it in a way that they've never done it before. So I watched this. If you know, if you know Dennis and John from our church stood on a stage, and they literally said, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to ask for $10,000. And we're just going to wait awkwardly until someone says that they'll give $10,000. Can you imagine that? In a billion years, I would have never tried that. He literally stood on a stage and said, we're going to try and raise these funds. So who here can give $10,000? And then he just waited for like what felt like an eternity. Okay? Can I tell you, they had that gala. They had less people attend than they've ever had. And they raised more money than they've ever raised. They raised $90,000 in one night. They had multiple $10,000 givers. And all that before that, I was huddled in a room with a group of people as Dennis shared this idea. And we prayed, saying, Lord, he can make this ask, but you're the only one that can make anything happen. Now, either I connect the dots and go, what a coincidence. Or it gives me a fervent reason again to believe. There's a real God who listens to his people as they pray. Whatever the case might be, we want to be a people who pray in this next season. So today, I want to have you consider what it looks like when a church prays. And I want us to take our first wobbly steps together in prayer. So I'm, I'm going to just lead us in a time of prayer. I want us to pray over two things 
So let's pray together. I'm going to invite you to pray in the quietness of your own heart, and then I'm going to ask someone to pray aloud so that your prayer might be our prayer. And that's what happens in corporate prayer. When you pray aloud, it's a prayer for all of us. And when we say amen to that prayer, we're literally saying, me too, Lord. I say that with that person. He said it much better. She said it much better than I could have. My amen means this prayer counts for me too. Okay? Let's pray together. As you pray, let's pray first confessing what keeps us from prayer. In your own heart, would you pray for yourself and for this church and confess the things that keeps us from being a prayerful people? Confess a sense of self-sufficiency and independence that maybe in dire, desperate times you cry out to the Lord, but for most of life you feel like you can handle it and so you don't pray. Pray that the Lord might give you a sense that you need him every hour. Confess your independence. Confess, perhaps, that why we don't pray is a, a cynicism, that deep down we don't believe that he's there or that he listens or he'll act. And we've grown numb and we have an unbelief. Confess our skepticism, our cynicism, our unbelief to God. Confess that we don't pray because we have a paralyzing fear of others. We're so nervous about how we'll sound or how it'll come across. Pray, asking God to set us free, to know that we're loved and accepted children by God. Confess, perhaps, that our lack of prayer is because we know God in our heads more than intimately following him in our hearts. And we know about him, but we're awkward in actually talking to him because our real relationship with him is shallow. Confess that and ask the Lord for a deeper, real relationship. And as we confess, let's ask the Lord together that God would make us a praying church. Would someone just pray for us, confessing our prayerlessness and asking God to help us be a praying church?